You're listening to Guitars and Granola Bars, episode 46. Thank you so much for joining me here on Guitars and Granola Bars, Music Therapist Talk Motherhood. I'm your host, Rachel Rambach, and this podcast is for music therapists and anyone else balancing a passion-fueled career with being a mom. In this episode, I'm chatting with Ginny Driscoll. Ginny is a mom, music therapist, researcher, and doctoral student. She has two beautiful girls, Neela, who is seven, and Madeline, who's three, and an amazing husband, Matthew, who is a professor of low brass. Ginny has been a part of the music perception team in the Department of Otolaryngology at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics for 11 years, where she investigates the ability of children and adults with cochlear implants to perceive music. She is currently in her second semester of her doctoral studies. Jenny, thank you so much for being on the podcast with me. Oh, it's a pleasure. So I am interested to hear about your background and what led you to music therapy because we've known each other for a while, but I don't think I know your backstory. So share it with me. Um, well, mine was a very circuitous route, like I, I kind of mentioned. Um, I started off as a chemical engineering major. I wanted to be... Uh, I wanted to be an engineer and I was going to go into biomedical engineering because I wanted to um, use my science background to really be helpful um, to people. But I was also in at least three ensembles every semester when I was at NC State. So there were days that I went from 10 to 10 or 8 to 10 because I would have um, all of the classes and then uh, marching band and jazz percussion and all these other ensembles. And I really enjoyed that part of it um and the university didn't have a music minor so it was just kind of extra things I was subjecting myself to without the fun of it um but I realized that engineering was great and I enjoyed it but I also enjoyed um not only the music but I volunteered at um, Dorothea Dix Hospital as part of a, a campus organization and we visited the kids that live there and Dorothea Dix Hospital is um in Raleigh, North Carolina, and they work mostly uh, forensic population for adults, but there were also kids that were living there because they were having issues and trouble. And I really valued that opportunity to go and hang out with these kids and just treat them like they were normal. Um, because, you know, aside from their circumstances, they essentially were. Um, and I kind of became less and less and less enchanted or more and more disenchanted with um, engineering. The math part was great. I loved it. The science part was great. But I kind of felt um, very static. And and I enjoyed all of the interpersonal things in my life. And so um, I ended up transferring to East Carolina University where they had a music therapy program. Um, I kind of found out about it as um, my mom going, hey, there's this program here, and there's one at Appalachian State, and there's one in East Carolina. And since I grew up down the mountain from Appalachian, I kind of didn't want to be that close to home again. So I I opted for ECU. Um, and when I got there, I, I literally knew nothing about music therapy. Um, it just sounded exactly right for me for whatever reason. Um, and so I spent the next three years there going through the music therapy program and learning that I was dead on in terms of um, it being the profession for me. And the benefit was that I got to use some of the engineering experiences that I had um, in helping other people. So I worked 
for a gentleman who was a quadriplegic. He was a C4 quad, um, which meant that he could move his upper limbs but had no use of his hands and he drove his wheelchair um, with the puff system and so I was a personal caregiver for him well he had a buddy who was a C6 quad which meant he also had more use of his hands so he drove himself in a in a van and he could steer his wheelchair with his with his extremities and he was a musician and so the two of them would get together um, and Marty my boss was a poet so they would write songs so Marty would write the lyrics and Mike would write the songs and um, he might played hammer dulcimer because he had enough tension between his third and ring finger and middle finger that he could hold the mallets for the dulcimer and get the re the bounce and recoil when he played the instrument. Well, then somebody decided to give him um, a marimba of some sort, but he had no way to play it. So I got to work with him to design mallets that allowed him to be able to play this new instrument. And so I kind of just took everything that I had and smashed it together to kind of make it work um, to, to utilize all of the different strengths that I thought I had. And so it really became um, the best of both worlds for me because I got to use the science part that I loved and I got to use the music part that I really craved. Um, and so it, it just put it all together for me in a nice pretty package with a bow. Nice. So at any point during your studies in music therapy, did you regret leaving engineering or did you miss it at all? Or did you feel like, yes, 100%, I made the right choice? Oh, it was 100%. Um, I still took a few math classes for the fun of it. So I ended up one math class away from a minor. I didn't take differential equations or something. Um, so I kind of fed every part of it because um, the students at East Carolina were very active and we went out into the community and did a lot of different things. So it was really cool. Um, one of my colleagues, Thomas Hobson, who's in Memphis, um, and I worked with um, a dance troupe of individuals with disabilities. And so we got to kind of be their musicians and sometimes it was improv. So we um, had to really kind of hone those skills. Um, and other students, we would go around and we kind of reverse trick or treat. Um, and so we had bake sales or some sorts of sales in the music building. And then if somebody bought a package of candy or something for their friend, then we took one to like the hospital, um, or we took them to the nursing home. And so we, we made sure that things kind of balanced out and I never really missed the engineering part of it. Maybe because the first couple of weeks you continually told you're going to be weeded out <laughs> the first class they say look to your left look to your right two of you won't be here in a year um and and in music therapy it's a, it's a different vibe um and it and I think we work more toward the success of others I think that's part of our innate desires um but I've always found a way to kind of make the engineering part work. Like if I can make something or build something so that somebody can be successful, then I'll do it. Um, and, and I was a student before a lot of the adaptive equipment that we now have was really available. There was a, a limited amount. And so um, I spent a lot of time trying to, to make some of those things work because they weren't really as available then. Yeah, yeah, that makes perfect sense. And now knowing what you do currently, it all kind of makes <laughs> A lot more sense, and we'll get into that for sure um, in a in a few minutes. Um, so, what was your where did your path take you after you finished your degree? Um, I did my internship in Chicago, 
at the University of Illinois at Chicago in their Psychiatric Clinical Research Center, which sadly is not an internship anymore because it was amazing and wonderful. Um, my desire was to go anywhere west of the Mississippi. Um, I wasn't one of the, the folks who want to stay nearby. I wanted to get out and explore the world. So that was the closest one to home that I actually applied for. Uh, the others were like, California, Arizona, let me get out and see the world. Um, and then after that, I ended up... Um, because my now husband was my boyfriend, and he was still in North Carolina. Um, he finished his degree, I finished my internship, and um, he ended up landing a teaching job in a very small town in Tennessee. Um, and so, somehow, fortuitously, a parent in this very small town um, with a child who had disabilities wanted a music therapist. And so, I found that out from him through a grapevine thing and kind of contacted the special education director and said, hi, you need me. And this is why. And, um, sent a letter, did a cold call and then was invited to go meet with her. So I drove to McMinnville, Tennessee, which is the nursery capital of the world when it comes to plants and foliage. Um, and took in the, the fact sheet that I had from AMTA and went in and said, you know, this is what I know you need. This is, um, this is what I can offer. And I'd really like the opportunity. Um, And then I found out that that school system was kind of one of the leaders for the area. So I started contacting other school systems and said, well, you know, I'm working for this school system now. Um, Don't you want to kind of keep up with the Joneses? Um, And some of them wanted to kind of see it for a year before they they hopped on board. Um, But I also made sure that, that I wasn't stepping on the toes of any music therapists in the area. Um, I was actually pretty close to Tina Haynes because she was at the VA in Murfreesboro. Um, but other than that, there weren't a lot of practicing therapists. So I I didn't have to worry about that aspect. But I definitely looked into it to make sure that I wasn't going to be uh, encroaching. Yeah. That's pretty brave of you, just coming out of internship to to approach a school that way. But that's awesome. And that's I feel like that's what music therapists need to do, especially new ones now. They need to hear that that works sometimes it does and yeah. it was it was interesting because she said well we'll give you we'll give you one day a week to to start out um now i was completely naive on how much money i needed to survive and and all of that but um i was still able to make it work and i went in very confident and said you know well the average salary in tennessee is this and she kind of got really big eyes and said well that's how much we pay our you know school psychologist with a phd and it went just that's what the numbers say um and so it, it ended up working out again I think some of it was naivete and competent and confidence um but she bought it <laughs> and it worked um and and it, and it started in that school system and I ended up actually the next year um moving and going to graduate school but I was fortunate to have Kevin Bolton um pick up and come into that area. And now he and his wife have their very successful music therapy practice in Tennessee. Um, I don't know that they're still serving that area. I think there were financial issues that everybody got hit with a few years ago, but it was cool that it continued and he built it up even more so. Yeah, that's great. And that's always, I think, so important for us music therapists when we move on from one place to another to know that the work that we did originally is being continued and people are still receiving services. That's awesome. So after you left and went to grad school, what did things look like for you? 
Um, lots of research papers and homework. <laughs> Sounds about right for grad school, yeah. It, it does. Um, I ended up getting married in 2004, and we moved to Iowa the week after our honeymoon. So it was a, a year of upheaval. Um, but I've been here ever since. And so um, got into grad school and um, was really fortunate to have a TA-ship in uh, Dr. Gefeller's research lab at the hospital. And so that was um, a little bit daunting because we had to submit – um, a writing sample for our grad application and the first sentence in my writing sample cited her and I thought oh no if this is bad it starts off really bad and only gets worse um, and I knew again enough to be dangerous I knew some sign and and I knew a little bit of research about cochlear implants only from what she had published in our literature um, and so I, I learned really quickly what I didn't know um, and I learned that there was even more that I didn't know and so I was, I was fortunate to be able to work in her lab and really learn a, a lot about um, the research area and, and kind of what she had pioneered, both in our field and in the field of cochlear implants, because she was the first person in the world to look at, at cochlear implants in music. Um, and it would be, you know, the only person trying to present a paper at a conference and kind of crickets in the background. So... Um, I had, you know, grad classes and, and that was my TA ship or, or research assistant ship. And so I um, had 10 hours a week where I started off working in the lab and testing patients and learning how to enter data and all the fun things that come with that. What sparked your interest working in that field? I don't know. I always, I think I was always interested. Because um, like I said, one of the papers I submitted was was on cochlear implants and it was something that I did as part of an undergrad project, I just I thought it was neat. Um, we had a kid in my, when I was in high school and he was in middle school who was deaf and, um, he was really good friends with some of the kids in our neighborhood. And so we saw him often and, um, interacted and I just thought it was really neat. So when I found out there was this thing called a cochlear implant that might make or might help people hear, then it it just sparked my interest. And then there's a music therapist, and wow, it's Dr. Gefeller, and hey, she kind of knows what she's talking about um, doing this research. It, it made it even more interesting. Awesome. So what did things look like for you on the personal side while you were in grad school? Um, It was really interesting because it was not only navigating grad school, but being a newlywed and navigating being married while in grad school and figuring out the whole social aspect because I moved here um, not really knowing anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, my husband moved here and had three buddies that were also in the program. So it was developing female friendships um, with my husband who's got all these buddies that are here already. And so um, I was really fortunate that there was kind of a small group of us in in the master's program that served as a cohort. We all came in together and we all moved through. And so I had Kara Groen, who I knew in name only as a former AMTAS officer when we were both undergrads. Um, Megan Masco, who's at UND. Um, Teresa Chardos Camilli, who's now at the University of Northern Iowa. And so that there was that pocket of the four of us that were sharing a lot of the similar experiences. Um, in very kind of very different ways. Teresa was single. She well, she had a boyfriend. Kara was um, commuting from two hours away or an hour and a half away, and Megan lived in town with her husband and had a small child. So we all commiserated in our own ways and and kind of served as our own support. 
And so I was able to, we, I was able to really work with them and, and share experiences that way. And we all kind of finished in our own course. Um, I think Teresa and Kara finished up first. And during her last semester, Kara, um, had her first child and did her capstone and presented and wrote a paper, which is insane. Wow. Um, yeah, <laughs> it was amazing. Um, and then, you know, Teresa went on and, and got her PhD and then Megan finished her coursework cause she was equivalency and masters. And so, um, hers was a little after mine and then she rolled into her PhD. So, um, we all kind of stair-stepped and staggered in different ways, but served as a, as kind of a support system for each other. So Kara would spend the night at my house on nights that the weather was bad and I didn't want her to have to drive home um, or if we had an 8 o'clock exam. So it, it worked that way really well. And my husband um, adapted to being married and having a full-time female roommate. Um, <laughs> that is a big adaptation. It is. Yeah. Um, and I realized that he was really, really neat and tidy when we were dating. And I was really, really neat and tidy when we were dating. And then when we got married, we just kind of let it all hang out. Um, and and it was still pretty decent in our house. But as we've added children, the amount of stuff has exploded. Mm, so As it tends I, to do. It really does. Yeah. The first child you can contain and put in boxes and containers. And the second one, it's all over. But the crying, as my dad would say. Um Things just explode. You you don't have the space that's yours anymore. Right. Um, but but we 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 navigated it pretty well. Um, partly because we were fourteen hours away from our parents, mm. on both in both regards. Um, and then we just we both had homework and and stress and studying and stuff. So we were able to kind of commiserate in that way. We originally had a class that we were scheduled to take together, and then that one ended up being canceled, which was probably a good thing. I don't know if the two of us in the same class would have been a good thing. Maybe for studying, but not for comparing grades. Right. Yeah, that would have been an interesting (laughs) dynamic. (laughs) Yeah, we're both a little competitive. That might not have been good. (laughs) Yeah. So (laughs) did you have kind of a game plan in mind for when you finished grad school? Um. Yes and no, because I was doing my master's and he was doing his DMA. I knew his would take longer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the the um, the events that transpired really kind of worked in our favor. Um, the supervisor in our lab, um, Carol Olszewski, um, ended up moving when her husband finished his PhD. And so I moved into her position as the supervisor. Um, so my last year as a master's student, I was working 30 hours a week in the lab while finishing up my degree, which financially was awesome um, because that afforded, you know, health insurance and money and food and power and things like that, um, powers and electricity. And then um, as I finished, then I was able to move into that as a full-time position. And I really like I really like research. I always have enjoyed it. Even my internship was a research-based um, clinic. So I've always liked asking questions and finding out why, and usually that ends up with more questions. Um, and that afforded us the opportunity to um, to be more stable and to kind of let my husband take his time in finishing his degree so he wasn't in a hurry because we were eating ramen noodles every night. Um, and so my big goal, um, when I finished in 2006... Yes. 
Is that right? Yes. <laughs> I have to do the math. Um, I was a very happy girl, and I personally had a goal that I wanted to be pregnant by the time I was 30. I didn't need to have a baby, but I wanted to at least be pregnant by the time I was 30 because I knew that in the world of medical works that they start looking at you funny when you hit certain numbers. Right. When you have babies. And so um, I figured, you know, we got married in 2004 and I wanted to have a baby by or be pregnant by the time, you know, it was, it was 2007. That was my goal. Um, he made it with room to spare. And so my first daughter was born in um, August 2008. So he still, let's see, at that point he had his last recital. So his, or his next to last recital. And he actually put a sonogram picture up as his, oh. <laughs> as his fire. Oh no, that's awesome. <laughs> really great. And I thought, well, that might give the professors a little more motivation to pass him on the recital. Exactly. Yeah. That was smart <laughs> thinking on his part. True. And then his very last recital, um, she was actually there. So I had to have her in the back with all of her books very quietly, not interrupting the um, recording. But again, I think that was good motivation and it, and it gave him some good juju um, to get through his recitals. And then his defense, I ended up, I was actually pregnant with our second daughter at that point. So I figured a good pregnant wife in the corner rubbing her belly and smiling certainly awesome. doesn't hurt. <laughs> mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, four years later, our youngest was born. Um, and, you know, during that whole time, I've been really fortunate that I've had this great, um, great job doing research and um, actually ended up, um, because I work for grant funding, and grant funding is always questionable, mm -hmm. um, ended up working for two different researchers, part-time for Dr. Gefeller and then part-time for another professor um, who did research on speech perception. And so they kind of recognized uh, the strengths that I could bring to her lab as her lab manager left. And so I was basically working for two wonderful people who are used to full-time lab managers for half time of each, which meant, you know, 60 hours a week for instead of 40 <laughs> because of my need to make sure everything's perfect. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> so how did you, how did you keep all of that up while you were pregnant while you had young babies? Um, I'm not exactly sure, <laughs> I'll be honest. Uh, with my first daughter, because I had not been working very long, I had a seven-week maternity leave. So it was very short. And um, I will tell you that the first week or two, I was probably miserable being back at work because I was mad that I couldn't be gone longer. Um, but I was very fortunate in that her daycare was a seven-minute walk away. Mm. And so um, – and and – very understanding boss who would let me go have the breaks that I needed. And so I had, you know, break in the morning and then at noon I would go walk over to daycare and I would get to see her and snuggle her and get rejuvenated and go back for the next couple of hours. Um, and that worked really well for that first year. Um, and then she stayed there for three years. And so I was, you know, always able to, if I needed a fix or if I, if something went wrong that I could walk to get to her, which, you know, not only healthy for me, right. <laughs> being able to walk her, um, but I could get that, that connection. Um, and also if she was sick, I had the opportunity on numerous occasions that I could work from home because most of the things that I do involve data and writing papers and dealing with manuscripts. Those are things that can be done in front of any computer mm -hmm. as long as I didn't have an actual person I needed to work with. Right. So that part, um, 
was really, really nice. Um, and, and, and has maintained. So there were times on maternity leave with both kids that I had a baby in one arm and was either typing with one hand or using my toes to navigate a computer. It absolutely happened. Um, and with, with Madeline, my youngest one, um, I went in probably every week when I was on maternity leave. I took 12 weeks for her because I had enough time built up. Um, but I was able to go in about once a week for meetings or something that I had to take care of. But I took her with me because nice. when you've got a department full of women, someone will want to snuggle the baby. Exactly. Well, and that's what I've learned this time around with Mia is that I have a lot more stuff that I have to do during the day than I did with Parker. And everybody's thrilled when I bring her with me. So I, I don't feel guilty about it anymore. It's just like, exactly. oh, I'll bring the baby and make a whole bunch of people happy. <laughs> Exactly. Plus, I thought, you know, if you need me here and I'm supposed to be on maternity leave, my kid's coming along. Exactly. Uh, and and I was fortunate that Madeline went to the same daycare. So I was able to do the same thing with her for that first year of going and visiting her when needed um, or being home if needed. And we had some really cold winters where school was canceled for, for Neela. And um, I was able to work from home and, and get manuscripts out or you know, get data taken care of or presentations for conferences because they're always going on. Yeah. Yeah. Did you find it challenging to work from home when you had your kids there with you? Or how did you how did you manage that? Um, it depended on their age. So if they're little and they don't move, it's not a problem. Um, once they became more mobile, it was a little bit of a challenge. But I found that um, I could do a lot of work when they were taking a nap. Or um, even in the evenings, because some of this isn't really time sensitive. So my kids were going to bed at 7 o'clock. So from 7 to 9 or 7 to 10, I could get a lot of work done. Because my husband was going to be in the basement practicing. Um, and I could just kind of pound out whatever ha needed to happen. Um, there have been events where Dr. Gefeller and I have been emailing at midnight trying to get a deadline met. Um, and, and that's just kind of part of it. And she understands that and will actually remind me of that when I forget the eight to five are not the only hours that I can get work done. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's challenging, but you have to find those other hours that work for you. And with some people, it's those early hours. I'm more of an early bird type person. My brain pretty much shuts off like seven o'clock hits and I'm done. <laughs> Understood. Yeah. I, I drink coffee incessantly. Um, not enough to, to, you know, cause heart damage. Um, I learned during my internship what number that was, not from experience from this farm, pharma, uh, pharmacy students that were in our department. Oh, really? Um, but I am the person that can finish a cup of coffee and then go get in bed and crash. Um, <laughs> I think it just tastes good to me now. It doesn't really have too much of an effect. It's mostly placebo. Yeah. Um, but I... I there are times that I can wake up really early, like five o'clock in the morning and get going. And other times that it hits me at 10 o'clock at night and I go, Oh, second wind. My brain is working again. Yeah, And I'll just kind of pound it out whenever it happens. Yeah. Yeah. You do what you got to do is basically <laughs> the, the bottom line. Exactly. Yeah. So did you feel like you changed it all or that your, your um, approach as a music therapist and as a researcher changed after you became a mom? Absolutely. Um, I, I do get to do some clinical work as part of, of our job. And, uh, and I work with 18 month to six year olds who have um, speech language delays. 
and um, and hearing loss. And so they either have cochlear implants or they have hearing aid. And, and some of them have um, additional disabilities on top of it. I've worked with kids who are medically fragile um, or who have Down syndrome and, and lots of other comorbidities. And what I realized is um, I think I get I get it a little bit more. Um, and I use my kids in a good way. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm going to try something new for the first time, I will run it by either Neela or Madeline, depending on the appropriate age. And if my kids don't buy it, I don't use it because they're a better, they're a pretty good rubric of what's going to work. If they don't like it, then the kids in my session just look at me like I have three heads <laughs> and they don't respond. Um, but if I can practice it on my children and instantaneously I get the response that I'm looking for, then I know there's a better chance that it's going to work. Or if it doesn't work with my kids, then I know I need to refocus it um, or tweak it in some way to make it more successful. So I love using my kids as guinea pigs. I'm so and- glad you said that because I do that all the time with Parker. And it uh-huh. is, it, it's amazing. Like it works. Oh, it does. It yeah. works like so well. I'll I'll write a new song and I'll try it with him. And if he like picks up on it immediately and he can kind of do the desired outcomes that – you know, the song's working on, I'm like, oh, okay. All right. Yeah. This is a good one. I found that Neela, now that she's seven, is a little more reticent to actually help me out. Um, but if it's a good, if she likes it, then I know it's a good one. Yeah. Whereas Madeline, if she asks to sing it again, or if she starts singing it on her own, mm-hmm. if it's a song I've written, then I'm like, okay, this is a good one because right. there's clearly enough repetition for her to get it. And if she's targeting kind of that thing, then yes, it's a good one. I've had a few times where, I've tried one and either Neela or Madeline will poo-poo it and I'll try it anyway. And it, it seriously, it'll tank. Mm-hmm. Um, or I'll find myself in the moment going, oh, I need to change it this way. And then as soon as I do that, then it's effective. So that's a, a one way. And then I've realized that sometimes I treated children older than they were. So n- not understanding what the mindset is of a seven-year-old or an eight-year-old or a nine-year-old. Um, and the way I talk to them has changed. And I've found mm. that even in the research labs, these kids come in and I'm asking them to do things that are not easy. Um, to us, they're easy, but the, what they're hearing is more challenging. And I found that I, I have made myself more animated. Um, and, and for some of them, I realize I talk to them more like I'm talking to my own daughter or maybe a little younger than my own daughter because I'm not their mom. And so I try to make it more fun and more entertaining, knowing that what they're going to go through is not pleasant. Um, Most of the kids, when they hear music, that's how they hear it. But I'm asking them to do a task that's more challenging. And so I find that I've understood more of how they think about it now. Whereas before I was like, the seven-year-old kid, he's just being obstinate and he doesn't want to do it. And, you know, he's crossing his arms. I'm like, okay, I don't know how else to rephrase this. Or I have a student that's like, this kid's not doing anything. And if I go in and I'm like, you know, this is, we're going to play this game. And some of it's going to be really hard and, and that's okay. Um, that I've, I've kind of had this cognitive reframing of this is mm-hmm. how they're thinking about it rather than thinking I know how they're thinking about it. Right, right. It's that perspective and like that inner you know the inner workings that are happening. And then also you have your strategies that you've used with your children (laughs) that you can carry into your work. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. I think every music therapist can relate to that that's also a parent, you know, because we do it at home. We have to do it in the workplace too. Exactly. Yeah. 
So <laughs> what are some of the challenges that um, that come with being a working mom? Um, I want to make sure that I have enough time for everything. So because I was insane and decided to also be a PhD student again, um, there's a there's a bigger challenge between, you know, going to work, coming home, helping my big kid with her homework, um, and and not being so exhausted and so run down that I end up just being a cranky mommy. Right. Um, and and I want to make sure that, you know, me doing this isn't a detriment to their experience because they only get one chance to be a kid. And I don't want it to be, you know, we, when I was growing up, my mom was always tired and she was always grumpy because she had so much homework to do and she was, you know, running from here to there. And so I try to make sure that my kids are involved in it. They get at least one extracurricular activity. Um, they're both in dance. Neil is also in Lego club, which I just think is way too cool to pass Lego up. Lego club? Lego club. They that built is awesome. Planes and they had an airplane that they motorized. It's just wicked. Um. And I think she's her to- the token girl in her group, which just makes it even more fun. Nice. That's awesome. Um, so I want to make sure that their experience is is positive and that they're not like, you know, I wish my mom had waited until I was 10 to go back to school because then I am more self-sufficient. And Neela is a really mature kid for seven. Um, and so I want to make sure that she isn't pushed too hard. I don't want her to be a 15-year-old in a seven-year-old's body. Um so I try to make time for us to have fun, and I try to do a lot of the homework after they go to bed. Um, I shoot for like a seven thirty, eight o'clock bedtime so that my brain isn't completely um, toast by the time they go to bed. And sometimes if it is, I just make sure that I wake, er- wake up early to get things done. Um, other times I'm like, you know, kids, you're going to get to watch a movie because Mama's got homework to do. Um, but I don't want them to miss out. So we try to do a lot of things. My husband works on Saturdays so that I can have my classes that are in the evening. So on Saturdays we play, um, we'll go see Santa or go hunting for elves this weekend because there's a lot of Christmas stuff going on And our downtown area has hid or has hidden, um, different elf on the shelf characters throughout different stores. So we're going to go try to find them. Oh, that's awesome. Um, and, and I want to make sure that they have fun. And, and sometimes we just, we get flat out silly and we will have a dance party um, in all of its absurd dancing, flailing motions um, because it's fun. Yeah. And then that's kind of how I try to juggle it all. And I, you know, I get home after dark now because it's always after dark after like four o'clock, four thirty. Um But when it's the summer, we go outside and we play and we've had neighborhood water gun fights. Um and the parents usually end up with a water hose and we win. But <laughs> um, I try to be as 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 normal, whatever normal is, <laughs> as I can so that um, they don't have to deal with the fact that I'm a grown-up and I have grown-up things. Right. Do you feel like it's gotten harder or easier now that the girls are a little bit older and a little bit more self-sufficient? Because I hear both sides of the coin. Um, well, because there's two of them, it's more of a challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, but Neela is extremely self-sufficient. So she finds things that she wants to do. Um, she'll come home and start reading a book or she'll get on her little leapster thing and work on spelling words. Um, but she's also got a great imagination. So she plays with dollhouses and things. And, um, as long as she doesn't, <coughs> excuse me, doesn't say, Hey mom, I need you for this. 
then I let her kind of play independently because she doesn't need me hovering all the time. But at the same time, we like to hang out. She likes to craft. I love to craft. Um, and she can do um, all kinds of things. But that's part of her personality. Even as a, a two- and three-year-old, she would sit and color for like an hour. And I don't know many two- and three-year-olds that would do that. Not the youngest many. one that I have will not. Um, so I think some of that's just her personality. Mm-hmm. Whereas Madeline... Um, She's a very loud child. <laughs> She's boisterous. She's boisterous. That's a better word. Um, and she likes to move and she likes to be involved and she likes to pull me in. Um, and I think some of that's, again, just her personality. So in terms of whether it's easier now that they're older, yes and no. They play really well together, which is a great benefit. That's a plus. Um, they also fight really well together, which is not a plus. Um but that I think that's part of just of being a sibling. Mm-hmm. So has it changed? Yes. Um, is it better? No, it's different. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's what it is. Is there's no one better than the other. It's just a different, um, a different interaction. Right. I guess I right. So where do you see yourself going once you finish your um, your PhD? Ah, oh, that's an excellent question. There, you know, there's always the opportunity um, to stay where we are. There's potential for that um, because a lot of the professionals in our field that are educators are approaching retirement age. Um, so that, I mean, staying here is there's potential, um, but there's a lot of a lot of um, upheaval going out throughout the country as different professors retire and people move and take their places. And I would love to be able to be closer to our families because we are 14 hours from each of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the, in the grand scheme of things, I would just love to be at a great university where I can continue to do some research. Um, I think a part of me would be missing if I didn't do something. Um, but it, it doesn't have to be a top tier research one or whatever they call it. No. Um, I just I love working with students and I I always have um and so I would I would like to continue doing that in some capacity. Yeah. Yeah, do you have um is there like a date a projected date that you're going to be completed or not really? <laughs> um right now my projected semester to take my comprehensive exams is the fall of 17. Um I would like to be able to kind of have an idea of my research study for my dissertation at that point and um, and have kind of a, a head start on it. But um, right now, no. <laughs> yeah. Sometime in the future, it won't be before I turn 40, and I'm okay with that. And there's nothing wrong with that. Hey, my mom, <laughs> my mom went back and got her PhD at the age of 53, so. There you go. Yeah. So I yeah I won't I, I I turn 39 in January so it won't be before I'm 40 <laughs> and I'm okay with that I will be comping when I'm 40 that's just kind of how it's gonna go and I'll play it out and juggle everything as we go along yeah because it's crazy to think that by the time I'm done that Madeline would be in kindergarten it I makes bet. me shake <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so you have so many different things going on, and you're being pulled in so many different directions. I can't even imagine. Um, what do you do for self-care? 
Um, I'm practicing saying no. That's a good thing. Have you read the I, book Essentialism? I have not. Should I do that? You should do that. Yes. That's it's all about I'm- that. It's all about <laughs> saying no and prioritizing the things that are that you're passionate about and only saying yes to those things. Yeah. Um, I, I'm practicing saying no. Um because there are so many things that I want to do and I would love to be able to do. Um, and they usually do involve my passion that um, I have gotten better at recognizing what's really more important. Mm-hmm. And and kids make you do that anyway, but right. kids plus a job plus school plus pick something else, it, it kind of requires that you do that. Um, I started running in uh, – well – seriously started running probably in June or July this year because I did a half marathon to raise money for AMTA, which was my first. Um, I found that that really helped me clear my head. Even though I do run with, with music, I, it kind of serves as that tempo for me to entrain myself when I'm running. Um, but it gives me that, that avenue to escape and be, um, physically present. Um, I also love to craft, so my big girl and I craft a lot together. What kind of um, crafting do you do? Yarn. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I like to crochet. I learned how to do that in my internship. I taught myself to knit last fall before I went back to school because it's a great time to learn a new hobby when you can't do it anymore. Um, but I also love to do cross-stitch. And so um, my husband looked at me last week during Thanksgiving and said, you need to unwind. Madeline needs a, her Christmas stocking. Why don't you start making that? And so for some reason I said, okay, even knowing that I have finals coming up, (laughs) Um, but knowing that it's one of those things that I can do in steps and still see progress, kind of like goals and objectives. Um, I'm going to do this color and I'm going to finish this color and then I'll see that come together. Um, So those are the kinds of things I do. And my yarn stash is um, a little bit embarrassing in the quantity of it. Um, And then, you know, I do things with my kids because – Neela loves to craft, and she likes coloring books, and she likes um, perler beads and things. So they're all over my house. Um, but we we like to play together, and and we do that. I think it's so great that your self care involves your girls. I think that makes it even more enjoyable because so much of the things that you do take you away from from them. So it's great mm-hmm. that the things that re re energize you, you can do with them. Yeah, and Neela's gotten into running now. She um, wanted to start raising money for the children's hospital. She's a very empathetic kid. I don't know wow. how that happened. Um, she gave away all of her birthday presents from her sixth birthday to the children's hospital. Way to go, um, spontaneously on her own. So we have we've done some running together, and so the the three of us or all four of us will do five Ks and Madeline usually rides in a stroller till the last 10th of a mile. And then she gets out and finishes, crosses the finish line and feels very proud of herself. Uh-huh. Uh, and Neela will do five Ks with me, um, which is good. Cause then I work on lots of positive reinforcement mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and just instilling confidence in her. So I'll, I'll say things that we should say to our children anyway, like you're stronger than you know, um, rather than just the, you can do it because I want to kind of give her those mantras that kind of stick in the back of her head when she's struggling in the future. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's fun to do that because then when she finishes, it's like, look what you just did. And we compare her times and she's beaten her times, you know, every time she does another race, it's faster and faster. And, and, uh, so, you know, just giving her the, the motivation that the only person you're really up against is yourself. Right. 
Yeah, so. that's such a great life lesson to be doing those things. Very cool. So what advice would you give to other music therapists that are moms or that um, are thinking about becoming moms or um, worried about juggling everything? Uh, there's never one true right time to become a mom. You can think you have everything lined up and things will still change. Um, I had a coworker that said that to me. She said, you know, there's no one right time. No, you know, you're kind of right. Um, because you just find a way to make it work. And it's, it's always worth it. Um, when I was first pregnant with Madeline, I found out that I might lose my job. And I went, oh, that's not awesome. Um, just because of the way the grant funding was working out. But we always found a way to make it work. And it's a pretty happy family. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and being able to to put those things that are important first. So, you know, my family, my I love my job. I love what I do. But my kids are so much more important than that. And being able to say, you know, this thing on my desk can wait until tomorrow. The world will not explode if this comma doesn't get put in a sentence or if the references aren't formatted. Um, and knowing that, that certain things are always more important. Um, but... You know, we we are creative as as a discipline in our field. We're all creative. We do we write songs and we come up with ways to make these um, these hurdles that these kids are facing, or adults or whomever we're working with, to lower that hurdle and to make it accessible. And so, um, it's it's the same thing in our lives. It's just being creative and how we're going to do it. Um, and for me, you know, this I got a, had a circuitous route when I started. To, into this profession and my life just kind of keeps bobbing and weaving and taking these turns. Um, but they've all been worth it. Yeah. Yeah. I love that analogy of low, lowering the hurdle. And I always like and agree with any comparison between music therapy and life and parenthood because it's so true. It is. And, and, you know, our kids are great. Like I said, I use them for measurements and they're great for a lot of those things that we're going to interact with. Um, you know, I wrote one song one night because I was trying to get my oldest to eat some food at the dinner table, you know, and it just kind of came out and I took it to work and I sang it for Rachel C and she loved it. And so it's one of the songs that she uses now and put it in one of her eBooks. And I was like, this is just cool. Um, because I wanted my kid to eat her dinner. Yeah. <laughs> um, I find that I did that a lot. Um, I used a lot of the music therapy training especially for my firstborn to get her to do things. I put her to sleep with the baby bumblebee, like ISO principle. And I started at normal temp and then slowed down the tempo until she was unconscious. And I looked to my left and so was my husband. So apparently it worked on him too. Um, Good to know. But I, I could, you know, do that. And, and I knew what I was doing. Um, I wasn't doing it as a therapist. I was doing it as a mom who knew that this was a, an approach that would work. Um, and then learning that it doesn't work for every kid because nothing that worked for her worked for Madeline. Nothing. <laughs> Not one thing. I tried all of the same things and nothing worked. Um, but that was great because it made me grow in a way. I had to develop new techniques and new tools to address the same issues, uh, with, but with a person in a very different way. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, it generalizes to a lot of our lives. That's so true. So true. Well, do you have any music therapy-related projects or news that you'd like to share? 
Um, do I? <laughs> <laughs> I am going to be um, putting out an ebook with Rachel C. and Michelle Erfurt um, using uh, or putting together all of the songs that we have written over the last 11 years that I've been working with um, children with speech, language delays, and hearing loss. The prob- the program we work with is called Listen and Speak Up. So I refer to it as LSU, which always gets confused with the university. Oh, yeah. um, but the students that I've worked with over the last 11 years have been remarkable. Um, and so it's kind of a group effort of everybody that's come through um, so that we- music therapists have some more ideas for um, different songs and interventions that work for children who have hearing loss and speech language delays. Because we work with audiologists and SLPs in this group. We are one big cohesive unit. Um, And so when they say, we're working on this specific goal with this child, and we have a group of five, we still find a way to address the individual goals of each kid in a group with a song, just like any other music therapist. Um, But we have all these different, we have a huge collection of songs that we've written and interventions that we've developed that um, I would like to have available to the music therapy public that sounds amazing that's it could be yeah (laughs) wow so when when do you expect that to be available i'm going to shoot for this coming summer which gives me a lot of time to to make sure everything's compiled and, and to work with with rachel and michelle to get it going um you know it's 11 years of songs to put together that's a lot but um but i think it'll i think it'll be worth it um i have a lot of them were written with um, with sheet music, so some of them have recordings of a four-year-old version of my oldest daughter because I would send some of the recordings home with parents at the end of the summer. So the, their kids were singing them, and the parents could sing them correctly and, and work with them on it. Um, and then having a four-year-old sing gives you an idea of you know an actual singing skill of, of a child so that they're not going, why is my kid singing off pitch? Because every four-year-old kind of tends to sing off pitch. Um, but kind of honing those and refining them a little bit. Very cool. Well, I'll be anxious for that. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Well, Jenny, thank you so much for being on the podcast. This has been so much fun chatting with you and um, I really appreciate you sharing your story. Sure. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to send Jenny a message, you can contact her via Twitter at CI Music Research. There are just four episodes left of this inaugural season of the podcast, so if you'd like to be a guest, let me know. Get in touch and find the show notes for this episode at guitarsandgranolabars.com. And while you're there, make sure to sign up for my newsletter. I'll talk to you again next week. <laughs>